dieting started with questionable eating advice from an English poet, evolved to incorporate chewing techniques to make you crap less, and really went off the rails with the invention of amphetamines, cigarettes, and laxatives. Hey everyone, I'm Natalie, and this is the bizarre history of dieting. And who better to start with than the first celebrity diet icon, Lord Byron. Pale, thin, and obsessed with losing weight, Byron worked hard at maintaining his image as the quintessential romantic poet. His go-to slimming tactics? Wearing layers of clothes to sweat, staving off hunger by smoking cigars, and eating flattened potatoes soaked in vinegar. People ate this up, and young women everywhere tried to emulate him. But one thing the Romantic period didn't romanticize was carbs. Nearly 200 years before keto in 1825, a French lawyer and politician, John Anton... Anton? Anton? I don't think my mouth works that way. Jean-Anthelme Briat-Savarin. Nearly 200 years before keto in 1825, a French lawyer and politician, Jean-Anton Briat-Savarin, finally, recommended the first low-carb diet. And his advice was actually pretty solid. In his popular book, Physiologie du Goût, he wrote the cause of obesity is too much starch and flour-based foods. And he recognized people should eat in moderation and exercise. Wait a second, that's actually really good advice. Then why are we still coming up with crazy diet trends today? Well, it might be because his book also included lines like, A dinner without cheese is like a pretty woman with only one eye. In the US, things were a little more uptight with a minister named Sylvester Graham who lectured to crowds about the advantages of a vegetarian diet and the evils of alcohol. I'm drunk! Not only was Graham basically the first wellness Instagrammer, he's also responsible for another dietary innovation, the Graham Cracker. What about these as healthy? They're literally cookies. The idea behind the cracker and his whole diet was to help repress sexual urges. No tongues. So yes, we can thank Graham for laying the foundation for s'mores, but let's not forget the whole point of these celibacy crackers. It's good for keeping down the urges. You know how grocery aisles are packed with gossip magazines filled with personal diet tips from the stars? Well, it was like that back in the 1860s too. But instead of gossip magazines, it was pamphlets. And instead of taking advice from famous people, our great-grandparents got diet tips from an undertaker. Specifically, William Banting, who wrote about how he lost 46 pounds through a protein-rich, high-fat, low-carb diet that included wine at every meal, even breakfast. His diet was so well-known, it became its own verb. Joe's drinking has really gotten out of control since he started Banting, but he looks great. Wait, I know what you're thinking. All these diets seem a little too mainstream. I'm looking for something that will let me grind my food into liquefied gruel while ensuring I never poop again. Well, you're in luck. Enter Fletcherism. The early 1900s diet promoted intense chewing, as in chew your food at least a hundred times until it becomes a liquid and all trace of taste has disappeared. Then spit out whatever's left. Mm. Who? A key sign of success in this diet was a lack of bowel movements. Fletcher himself bragged about going number two once every two weeks. Ugh, 
The turn of the century and the Industrial Revolution brought a massive shift in not only who was dieting, but how they were doing it. Before, being overweight was mostly a middle and upper class problem, but working class people were now moving to cities. They had a little more cash and were eating fewer fresh foods. Couple that with the arrival of semi-modern medicine, and you've got the perfect recipe for the quick fix diet fad. Open a magazine anywhere in the US in the early 1900s, and you'd see ads for diet pills and drugs, and some were just plain dangerous, like loaded with small amounts of arsenic dangerous. But if you didn't want to choke down dangerous pills to fit into your flapper dress, there were alternatives, like cigarettes. <laughs> Lucky Strike started an ad campaign encouraging people to smoke instead of reaching for that cupcake. And if smoking wasn't your bag, you could have tried this chewing gum that's laced with laxatives. That rolls off while you chew. As the early 20th century brought a wave of scientific and industrial progress, some weight loss trends seemed downright medieval. This led to a whole mess of mechanical, vibrating contraptions that supposedly slimmed you down without you having to move at all. Then, in the 50s, diet pills made a huge comeback. They were known as Mother's Little Helpers and filled the medicine cabinets of mid-century housewives everywhere. Most of the pills were a mix of amphetamines and other questionable chemicals, and some people died from using them. By 1970, 8% of all prescriptions in the US were for amphetamines, but amphetamines had a few problems. Diet culture is a really valuable topic to be raising awareness around because it shows up in industries like fitness where we're supposed to be teaching people healthy habits, but we can be unknowingly teaching them that foods are good and bad or teaching them to earn their meal or that, you know, there's such a thing as clean eating, that certain foods are clean and other foods are dirty. And I think the words we use are really powerful. So it's really important especially to be teaching healthcare providers and fitness folks to use different language and educate people in a different way. I'm especially grateful to this up and coming topic of diet culture because I'm raising two little children and it's really great to be using different language with them in the house so that I can raise the next generation to be more aware of how we look at what we eat and how we look at our bodies. This is Dr. Aaron Nitschke. This is Dr. Darian Parker. This is Decoding Diet Culture. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Decoding Diet Culture. 
Today, we're going to talk about diet culture lies, and I have curated a list of 10 because they seem to be the most common lies that I hear students talk about, that I hear clients bring to my attention, or that I just see kind of in mainstream social media. The thing with diet culture is it's loud, it's pervasive, and it's really often, most often promoted by individuals who are not heavily credentialed. Um, they are not scientists, and they really have a very limited understanding of human physiology and, and what it takes to be fit and well. So the 10 diet culture lies that I want to focus on today really are all about the purpose of them, I should say, is, is really about trying to teach people how to recognize them when they come in contact with them. And the lies are pretty common across all like types of diets, all across different types of dieting platforms. Um, these are kinds of, kind of the messages that underpin those approaches. And I think people need to be aware of them. So we'll just jump right in. There's a list of 10. This is not an exhaustive list. Again, it just represents the most common. So the first one is food is good or bad. There's this dichotomous sort of thinking in diet culture, and it tends to want to lump foods into a good category or a bad category. Food is food, truthfully. It's, it's fuel. It carries a certain caloric content and nutrient profile, but it has no moral value. And as a physical being who burns energy just through the very essence of just being, you need food. Even on days you don't work out, you still need food. And really the better way to look at it is like within the nutrient profile. Yes, some foods are higher in calories and some are lower in calories. Like nuts and pizza are both high in calories. That doesn't mean that they're bad for you and they don't have a place in the diet. What we wanna be careful of though is eating too much of those processed like food-like items that come in like a bag or some sort of food form, um, but that aren't, aren't real foods or aren't closest to their natural state. Both foods, these so-called good and bad foods or these red and green foods, they, they all belong in a diet. They all fit in a diet. And in fact, the current dietary guidelines encourage Americans to customize and enjoy food and beverage choices that do align with those personal preferences, their cultural traditions, and any budgetary considerations they need to keep in mind. There's nothing about good or bad foods in the dietary guidelines. The second one is calories must be earned. You don't need to earn your food. Food does, is not need, need to be used as a reward, nor should it be used as a punishment on days that you don't move as much or move at all. What we want to focus on is staying within a reasonable caloric intake and, and focusing on honoring those hunger cues, which diet culture likes to mute by telling you, if you're hungry, drink water. No, if you're hungry, like get, get a little something to eat. That's your body's hunger cue. That's, that's your body telling you to, to eat something. So we don't need to earn our food. The third one is carbs are bad or inherently fattening. If somebody is not in a caloric surplus, meaning they're, they're not taking in more calories than they're burning, no one macronutrient, be it carbs, fat, or protein is inherently fattening. Diet, diet culture is really famous for its roller coaster occurrences of demonizing or promoting one macro over the other. First, we were fat shaming. We got to go with the low fat diet. Then we were lured into thinking, oh, it's protein. Protein is the key to everything. And then it was carbs are bad. So let's go with keto. 
And trying to keep up with all of these messages burns enough calories in and of itself. We need carbs to think, to perform high intensity activities, to simply exist. Your muscles are fueled with carbohydrates. So be aware of any diet that comes out and says, you need to cut this out. It's probably not a balanced approach. The fourth one goes along with number three, sugar is evil. Consumers tend to confuse the types of carbohydrates that are needed. So, you know, like in a, after an extremely strenuous competition, for example, yeah, we want some fast digesting and easily absorbable carbs to get on board to, to replenish glycogen. But the slower digesting carbs are more satiating. They have greater staying power, especially when we pair them with protein and healthy fat. They also carry fiber, which you need for digestive health and gut health. The, the, the issue with sugar is if it's too much added sugar and it is, it is overshadowing the other components of your diet. So that's really when a problem will surface because we want to, we want to stabilize blood sugar. We don't want to have these extreme highs and, and low lows. We want to enjoy it in moderation. So really that means about 10% or less of your daily caloric needs should come from that added sugar, not carbohydrates, added sugar. The fifth one, weight loss is always the goal. Diet culture likes to beat this drum over and over. You have to lose weight to feel good and be fit. It's not true. Bodies change over time. And the focus really needs to be more on optimizing personal wellness and bringing harmony to all aspects of a person's life, not just losing weight. The sixth one goes along with that one. Being thin or buff solves, solves your issues. That's what diet culture promotes. Like all of these quote unquote, beautiful, thin or buff people. Look how happy they are. It solves all your problems. No, there's actually no research to back that up either. So being thinner or taller or more defined or bigger muscles is not a cure for any ailment a person is, is experiencing if the root of that ailment is not addressed. Like if it's mental health problems, if it's stress, if it's an unhappy family home. The seventh one is weight is a measure of both health and self-worth. Diet culture is inherently focused on that stinking number on the scale. And it's such flawed thinking because a person's weight reflects their relationship with gravity. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. Weight doesn't highlight other important aspects like metabolic health, strength, endurance, balance, mobility, stability, mental health, all of those aspects. So that is certainly something to consider is that if you're coming across a message that's like, well, how much did you weigh this morning? Or you should weigh yourself every day. It's, it's, some, it's time to trash that and move on. Number eight, this is another example of that diet culture dichotomous thinking. Gaining weight is bad and losing weight is good. <clears throat> it, it has no moral value. We gain, we lose, we plateau. That's just part of being human. The point at which we really grow concerned is if we see that kind of creeping weight gain over time and there are adverse health issues that are cropping up but there's really no good and bad, but there are patterns we can identify and then help us design and, and implement specific interventions to change the course of that pattern. The ninth one, thinner people are happier people. There is absolutely no scientific evidence that tells us that if a, that a person's thinness equates to their happiness, the thinner you are, the happier you are, or the bigger you are, the happier you are. Um, there's, you will not find any evidence on this. So that's just a straight up lie. And then the final one, your worth is reflected by your food choices. 
I saved this one for last because I always find there's an inherent judgment that exercise professionals such as myself face. Either that judgment comes internally from our own monologues or externally from observers. But for example, if I go out to dinner once a month, sometimes I order a salad with grilled chicken with oil and vinegar. Sometimes it's a cedar plank salmon and veggies. Other times I enjoy a good burger or pizza, or maybe it's a great pasta dish. Food is not good or bad. It's food. And you, your worth is not reflected in the choices that you make. And really the message in all of these, these lies, these diet culture myths is that it's all about image and restriction in diet culture. And any valid scientific approach to health and fitness is rooted in behavior change, balance, and harmony. Instead of that restrictive mentality, we focus on bringing something more to the table. So is there a way to balance that exercise routine? Is there a way to add a fruit to a person's overall intake? That's really where the power is, is bringing balance to those dimensions and, and not about restricting or taking away. It's again, not about the body. We want to focus on the relationship we have with our own body. So those are the top 10 myths that I, that I hear constantly. And I hope you found this episode helpful and I look forward to talking with you again. Hello, it's me, I've avoided you forever while consuming calories, I love donuts, mac and cheese, they say kale is antioxidants but I'm anti-leafy greens, hello, can you save me? I'm in calisthenics dreaming about Netflix and Mickey D's When I was younger, these jeans Used to fit me, now my booty's got them bursting at the seams There's more circumference to my gut And no gap between my thighs Hella cravings for some fries I did one push-up and I cried And my glutes up shaking Every time that I lunge And this gluten-free bread Tastes just like a sponge Keep saying just one more slice And I feel so hangry Breakfast, dinner, and lunch And the ice cream truck is the only reason I run One of the biggest dangers of the diet culture is the effect it has on 
not only our physical body, but our mental mindset with the idea that we have to all be a certain size and how society has said that we either need to be buff with, you know, get the BBL done or have be rail thin to be a model. It causes so much of so many of us to yo-yo diet where we restrict ourselves and then that is not something that will give us substance and is manageable long-term that we whiplash back to eating and that could be eating normal or binge eating which causes us to gain the weight and feel so much worse. This is Dr. Aaron Nitschke. This is Dr. Darian Parker. This is Decoding Diet Culture. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Decoding Diet Culture. Today, we're going to talk about reminders about common diet culture messages. And I chose this because it's pretty timely considering a conversation I had in one of my classes with one of my students. So as a personal trainer, educator, health coach, I always hear my students express toxic messages that they've seen through diet culture and maybe not even recognize immediately that they are toxic. And other times they question whether or not they're they're toxic because of the way that it makes them feel internally after they've consumed that, that information. And Diet culture is, is interesting. It's, it's sort of what I call shape-shifting because sometimes its messages are overt and loud and other times they're really sneaky or they're packaged in some way that sounds really bright and shiny and beautiful, but it's really, really damaging. And fitness clients I find are particularly vulnerable to this type of messaging. Um, and I feel like as a professional in the health and exercise space, that I have a responsibility to help my clients and my students and consumers reframe the message, the messages that they hear in a way that accomplishes two very specific things. First, that it rejects the underpinning, underpinnings of the message of diet culture, which is the toxic messages. And it helps clients and students or consumers make health decisions based on evidence and not the random rhetoric of some science, quote unquote, uh, person on Instagram and Insta influencer, um, a fit fluencer, someone like that, that's less than versed. So I want to, to focus on some very specific messages that I want to use this opportunity to remind you about. And there are five of them because they are the most common. And two of them have come up in my class conversations just this week. So the first one is this fear of bread. Bread is bad and it makes you gain weight. If you ever notice in diet culture messaging, it's very much slanted in the low carb, no carbs, no carbs. Um, No one's living their best life without bread. Unless you have some sort of allergy sensitivity or dietary constraint, there's nothing wrong or bad about bread. And remember in a previous episode, I talked about that dichotomous thinking 
that diet culture tends to lean towards, which is that moral value. This food is good and this food is bad. Bread is tasty and it's, it's such a part of so many cultures and it does offer nutritious value depending on the vitamin content and the fiber content. Of course, we always want to, you know, look for those better options of fiber because it helps keep, keep our digestive system and gut health in check, but there's nothing wrong with a nice sourdough or a nice breadstick. Um, and second thing, bread or just carbs in general alone aren't going to cause weight gain directly. Again, it's about that overconsumption of calories that will do that. So again, unless you have an allergy or a sensitivity, or it's just not, not a type of food you enjoy, bread's not bad. Um, think about ways you can integrate a high fiber choice into your food selection. It's, it's gut healthy. It's gut friendly, unless of course, again, you've got a sensitivity. Um, and, and it's just enjoyable. No one's living their best life without bread. So really what you can do is start to learn how to evaluate food labels and identify any questionable or those highly processed products that really don't give us a, a ton of nutrients, but give us a lot of calories, which means we won't have the satiety feeling. We won't, we won't have the staying power, but that said a lower fiber option here and there is not going to derail any healthy eating pattern you've established or are trying to establish. For example, pizza isn't really high in fiber, but it's so fun to eat. And there's this pleasurable experience with it. So the message is don't cut out bread because some guru who probably eats bread, mind you, spreads that message. It's just not necessary. The second one that came up in class this week is cauliflower is a great substitute. Truth. Cauliflower can be a reasonable substitute for those with special dietary considerations, somebody that is worried about some sort of trying to keep their blood sugar stable, but not everything under the sun needs to be made from cauliflower because it can be. And sometimes it's just not a very tasty option. So I want to encourage you to try out a recipe or two. If you're interested in substituting rice, you know, with cauliflower or something to that effect. You want to, you want to have cauliflower rice, or you want to make, um, the cauliflower potato, something like that. Try out a couple of recipes, but the only way to know is to really try it. Um, but don't just make that a default, especially if it's not something you are going to enjoy, because if you're not going to enjoy it, it's no fun to eat that food. Um, but cauliflower can really be a great option for anyone who is sensitive to gluten or simply just likes the flavor better. They're trying to sneak in more cruciferous vegetables in their diet, but there's no need to put cauliflower in things like brownies and ice cream. I mean, let's be real with what we're substituting for. The third one, and I've talked about this before, is that sugar is evil. It's, it, it's not. Um, sugar is tasty. And really, as I'm sitting here recording this for you and, and talking to you about this, I am drinking a cup of hot tea with a teaspoon of raw honey because I like it. Um, and because diet culture tells me not to, I'm kind of stubborn when it comes to ignoring those messages of diet culture, but really though sugar can, and does work against people when it's overconsumed. So I don't want to make light of that, but that's just like anything you can consume too much of anything and it can become a problem. You can even consume too many vitamins like vitamin D, for example, it's a fat soluble vitamin. If you consume too much of it, it can build up in toxicity and that's an issue. We don't want that. 
So really the typical American diet includes way too much processed sugar and added sugar in products that really don't need to have added sugar. Things like frozen fruit or think about canned fruit in heavy syrup. Peaches without syrup are going to taste just fine. You don't need the heavy syrup. So that's the real issue. And that really is a component of the current dietary recommendations to become aware of and rein in. But really, unless directed by a primary care physician, a dietitian, you can safely consume sugar here and there. And don't feel like you have to skip your birthday cake because it's got sugar in it. Um, really, what, what will benefit you the most is being able to identify sources of added sugar and all of the secret names for sugar. You know, dextrose, maltose, rice, rice syrup, brown rice syrup, corn syrup, all of those. Think about it in terms of moderation and portion control. And also explore options for natural sweeteners. So sometimes I like to use unsweetened applesauce and baked goods, or sometimes I throw a mashed banana in. Uh, it depends on what I'm making, but nonetheless, like there, there are certainly options out there. So try a few recipes and see what you think. The fourth one is always eating clean. This one gets me because it's impossible to always or never do something. Um, and, and when we're extreme at either end of the spectrum, always and never, we get ourselves on a slippery slope. And then there's the issue of clean foods. What exactly does that mean? And, and what's, what's the intention there? When I've heard a client express the need to eat clean, it's, it's really as I've gotten through the conversation and kind of dug a little bit deeper and asked some more informative questions, I find that it's intended to communicate a desire just to simply round out the diet and, and eat a little bit healthier by adding certain options. It has nothing to do with clean or dirty foods. Um, the issue here with this diet culture message is that we're equating clean with healthy but that it isn't necessary to always choose like the higher priced organic options over something that is similar, um, that's a little bit lower in price, but still high in nutrient value. We, what we have here really, when we talk about clean eating is a language problem. Food isn't dirty. It's not junk. It's not bad. It's generally nutrient rich or energy dense. It, it, that's just how it is. Um, and sometimes foods can be both energy dense and nutrient dense. And, you know, think about almond butter, peanut butter, walnuts, um, fish, fatty fish. Those are all very nutrient dense. We want those in our diet, but they're also energy dense. So we can't, can't really divide into clean and dirty. So, so really if you, if you start gravitating towards that, that idea of, I need to eat clean, start asking yourself what that actually means to you. Um, and if you are a fitness professional, one of the things I like to do is ask them questions that are really intended to unravel the thought process around what clean eating means to them. And I like to introduce them to language that doesn't categorize foods as good or bad. So things that are nutrient dense versus good or bad. Um, and then really helping, helping clients come to a place of balance where their focus is on what foods they can add. So that additive value versus that restrictive component. People will be far more successful if that's the narrative and it's not about restriction or deprivation. And the last one, this is also something that came up in classes. We were talking about anthropometric measurements and goal setting, and, and it was weight loss is healthy progress. And that was actually one of the perspectives of one of my freshmen. 
not a bad perspective at all, but it's also been shaped and influenced by diet culture. So again, when we look at weight in isolation, it really doesn't measure health. Um, for example, like unintentional weight loss might mean there's an issue such as a disease state and nutrient deficiency. Maybe there's a mental health concern. So when we complement weight loss, we could be complementing the presence of disease, the presence of a disordered eating pattern or an eating disorder. And really to define health and healthy progress, we need to understand all components. We need to understand blood pressure. We need to understand sleep quality and quantity stress levels. What is the lean tissue to non-lean tissue ratio? What's the outlook of this person, the mental health perspective and making it not about weight. A change in weight is simply one measurement and it is absolutely not the most revealing. So how I redirected that conversation was about the difference between a process goal versus an outcome goal. So for example, adding fruit to two meals a day versus losing 15 pounds by Christmas. When the first one is an action, a behavior, a habit. The last one or the second one, losing 15 pounds by Christmas is an outcome. So the, the key to really changing behaviors is to modify the behaviors our clients continually engage in. And then when we talk about progress, we need to talk about it in broader terms, such as energy levels and that sleep quality and response to stress or how they're handling something. You as a professional or you as a consumer can change the narrative. And you can do that by simply taking that, that pregnant pause in your thoughts and finding out like, why do I feel this way? And what does this actually mean? And kind of developing a sense of awareness about it. So really the truth here is that diet culture is never going to vanish. In fact, it'll probably just scream louder. It's too much of a moneymaker for those kind of peddling it. Um, those, those, you know, non-science gurus that claim to be gurus and they just have this rhetoric and this narrative that they continually promote. But as educated individuals, whether that's health and fitness professionals in this space, or it is a consumer, um, we really can help reframe the thought process and we can redefine those measures of progress by looking for evidence-based information and not at our Instagram feeds, um, not in those messages of good, good, bad, black and white thinking. Um, so, so really start taking, paying close attention to the messages that you consume surrounding health and wellness. Um, there's a whole wellness culture that really is just a, just a fancy word for diet culture. Um, and the messages are packaged very nicely and they're done up in a bow, but you strip it away and you undo that bow and it's all of these same messages. So just reminders about these are the common messages, but, but there's, there's not a lot of truth behind them, if any, in most cases. So I hope you found these reminders interesting and helpful, and we will catch you next time on another episode. Did anything happen yesterday that you were ashamed of?
Alexa, what is diet culture? Here's something I found on the web. According to thriveglobal.com, diet culture is a set of beliefs that worship thinness and particular body shapes. A little while back, I was spending some time with my new nephew. At only three months old, he needed all the attention he could get from us. When he needed anything at all, he made sure to let us know, and without second-guessing it, we gave him what he needed. What I realized in that precious moment, staring at that beautiful baby, was he had complete trust in his body. When his body told him to eat, he did. When he was full, he stopped. He believed and trusted the signals of his body. Imagine if we told my nephew at three months old that he didn't need any more food. He hadn't eaten enough for the day or that he had not wiggled enough to earn his next meal. Let's be honest, no one in their right mind would ever think to do that. It doesn't make sense because we trust that a baby knows when it's hungry or full without our intervening at all. This is Dr. Aaron Nitschke. This is Dr. Darian Parker. This is Decoding Diet Culture. Hello, and welcome to today's topic on decoding diet culture. We're going to tackle the seven red flags of fad diets. And I like to talk about this topic because sometimes those red flags can be a little bit sneaky, and it takes a little while to really break down the message. So I'm going to share seven red flags that I encourage everyone to be conscious of and to look for in any sort of weight loss, diet sort of ad or Instagram feed or Facebook feed, whatever, wherever you're coming across it. So evaluate what you're seeing for these seven things. So first one is buzzwords. And by buzzwords, I mean things like the word detox or cleanse, whole foods, willpower, eating clean, any of those. Fat diets love to hook consumers with these catchphrases. Elimination is another one. Results not typical is one of my favorite ones. And or no changes to exercise routine required. The last one gets me every time. Don't make a change, but get results and fast. And that's just absolute garbage. Beyond the message that change isn't required, this character, characterization of willpower as a virtue instead of a mind-body response is really probably the most damaging when a client uses willpower for this extended period of time, so for example, like a lengthy restricted diet or fasting, willpower is going to diminish because willpower is inherently limited. Given this, we need to understand that there are strategies to help us conserve willpower, such as planning for those moments where willpower might be diminished, that self-control might be diminished. Fad diets don't make this clear to consumers. Instead, it's this message of, well, you didn't have the willpower to do it. Instead of acknowledging that, that it's, it's a response, it's a mind-body response, and, and not this, this thing that we have limitless possession of. The second red flag that you want to be aware of are, are the fast results that are advertised. Advertise. This is also a buzz phrase, but, but it's really an unhealthy and unbalanced approach to a better lifestyle. I mean, let's not, let's not lie. Like who doesn't want a fast result, right? 
especially in the world that we live in where immediate responses seem to be the priority and the expectation. The reality is that any fast weight loss is going to be a combination of water, a very small amount of fat, and a fraction of your muscle tissue. And many fad diets work quickly because they tend to, to be structured in such a way that they manipulate water weight by combining lower carbs. So when carbs are lowered, metabolic water is lost very quickly. These diets also tend to cut salt or, or even some are using some sort of diuretic agent, which is going to force your body to process more, more water. Weight loss on these diets is not fat loss. And that's unfortunately a message that gets lost because diet culture and fad diets tend to package it as if you lose weight, you're losing fat. And that's the goal. And that's really not the reality. It's also not sustainable. The third thing that I find really interesting and a huge red flag is this dichotomous thinking. So things are categorized as good and bad, or foods are given a color, like a stoplight system where it's red, yellow, and green. These are famous in, in the fad diet world. It's this black and white sort of thinking and the promotion of that type of, of mentality. So for example, most fad diets are going to dump things like pizza into the bad food category and, and items like vegetables into the good category. So essentially they're assigning this more moral value to food sources. Some other diet approaches use some sort of stoplight scale, like I mentioned. It's, it's not helpful. It's not a helpful way to teach clients about, about the balanced eating or to help them develop this relationship with food that, that's really sort of freeing. It creates this, like an inherently restrictive mindset that I can't have this because it's bad, it's deemed bad. And that's just not true. The fourth red flag and, and there's a caveat with this one. So before and after photos, it's a very limited thinking and a very narrow view of, pro of progress, physical progress and health progress. This is not to say that before and after photos maybe aren't motivating to some people, but like workouts, there's, there's really not this one size fits all approach when it comes to evaluating progress, your own, or if you're working with a client, Fat diet programs love to myopically define progress by a physical result. So by that, like how much does the, does the scale weigh? What size are your genes? Before and after photos, all of that. And they often, these types of diets often neglect to point out the value in better sleep. That's a huge, huge progress indicator. More energy. So if there's a change in energy levels, it's a very noticeable change. Or if there's this, this kind of, new mindset that somebody has developed. Those are all signs of progress. And, and it's not about the number on the scale. The number on the scale represents a person's relationship with gravity. And that's it. It's nothing more. It's a very poor indicator of overall health. The fifth red flag, food group elimination. This is very, very common. Many fad diet styles enjoy demonizing one particular food group. In the most recent examples, it's, it's been carbohydrates. And these types of diets claim that if you eliminate a food group, you lose weight. Well, in part, if you eliminate a food group, you're also eliminating a source of caloric value and intake. 
this is going to most likely create a caloric deficit, which if someone is burning more calories than they're taking in, then weight loss is, is a likelihood. It's not the food group that's the problem. It's basically the misrepresented reason why weight loss occurs. It's not because you've cut out this, that, and the other. It's because ultimately you've, you've cut out calories and that has shifted the balance of caloric intake versus caloric expenditure. The sixth one, and this is one of my favorites, supplements, supplements, supplements. Okay. Supplement sales, fad diets, because they eliminate things, want to fill that gap with supplements. So they want to substitute something back in. And typically that's accomplished when you remove an entire category of food and then add something in. And a lot of times along with this, you hear the word proprietary. It's a proprietary blend. This only means that no one knows what's in it, particularly the consumer and the proprietor of that substance or that product. They don't have to reveal it. They don't have to disclose it. It's secret. It's shh. That's exactly what that means. So dietary supplements are meant to supplement as opposed to replace something in the diet in term, in, in case of an a deficiency. So say somebody doesn't have enough vitamin D your physician or dietitian is probably going to recommend that you have a vitamin D supplement. It makes sense. There's a deficiency we are trying to address with some sort of substance because it's not being taken in through the diet or some other means. Really supplements should be determined by a primary care provider or dietitian. They are the most appropriate professionals to identify a supplement need and, and then recommend it. It's not within the scope of practice of the instant influencer or the diet culture or someone who's posing as quote unquote, a health coach without the credentials. It's not within their scope of practice. And it's common to see this in fad diets. The other piece with this is the lack of regulations to the supplement industry. So they're not heavily regulated, not like foods or drugs, like pharmaceutical products. So if there's an issue that supplements not taken off the market until said issue has been reported and problems have arisen. And then there has been this investigative process and this big to do. And that then becomes a bigger issue because the, the lack of safety surrounding supplements is a big question. And it is a billion dollar industry. So supplements, you really need to look for something that's third-party verified and tested. The U.S. Pharmacopoeia seal, the USP. And most importantly, talk to a registered dietitian or a physician. If you suspect there's something that you need, or if you come across a substance, a, a supplement that you're like, I wonder what this is, then talk to someone about it and, and check these re more reliable resources. The seventh one, and I love this one because it is the underpinning of every fad diet I have ever researched. Weight loss is the focus. And again, weight loss does not equal fat loss, but that again is how these fad diets suck people in because they one categorize weight loss as good and weight gain is bad. That again is dichotomous thinking. And it's not true. 
and they often work on complementing weight loss. And we need to understand that not all weight loss is intentional. And sometimes when weight loss is complemented, it's possible that someone could be complementing an illness, a disease, something someone's battling or depression. So it's, it's not something that, that should be celebrated in the traditional way that it is, that it is currently. So really fad diet programs aim to encourage the, the consumer to weigh themselves each day and then celebrate a reduction in that number. The problem with that is our weight fluctuates from day to day, and it depends on how much water you had the day before, um, any amount of waste you're carrying, or if you had a more carbohydrate heavy day the day before, or you've got some sort of inflammation going on. It is never going to be consistent from day to day, but most fad diets are going to say, you got to get up first thing in the morning and weigh yourself. That is not motivating to the vast majority of people. And so when I work with clients, I try to help them identify ways that they're going to measure their progress. And we don't even talk about the scale. I don't even take initial measurements. We talk about things like what's, what's off balance for you right now. Is it, are you not sleeping? What's your hydration like? How much caffeine and alcohol are you taking in? And those types of things. And I, and I try to investigate it with them on, in a very holistic way so that the scale isn't even part of the conversation. It is a very limited story and it cannot tell us everything it needs to about a person's health, fitness, or happiness. And if it's triggering for you, I always encourage clients when you go to the doctor, unless it's medically necessary don't let them weigh you because you know what they do is they weigh you and your appointment's probably at three o'clock in the afternoon. And let's see, you've had probably two meals, some caffeine, hopefully some water, and you may have had a couple of snacks by this time and you've already got waste in your system. So they take that number and they compare it to how tall you are. And that gives us the BMI, which categorizes us as underweight, normal, overweight, or then there's three classes of obesity. It does not take into consideration a functioning metabolic rate or muscle mass to, to, to fat mass. And it is not a measure of cholesterol, heart function, lung function, gut health, mind health. It's not an indicator. It, it is the most, in my opinion, as a health and exercise professional, one of the most useless measurements we can still be focusing on. So keep that in mind about, about some diet you come across. Does it, does it have these seven things? So to recap, the first one, buzzwords. Is there a detox involved? Because your body has three detox systems already in place, the liver, the kidneys, and your integumentary system, your skin. You don't need an expensive tea. You don't need any kind of food that's going to eliminate toxins. The second, promising fast results. Progress takes time. And fad diets don't like to admit that. The third one is that all or nothing thinking, the good and the bad, the red, yellow, green foods. Same thing with weight loss or weight gain. Weight loss is good, weight gain is bad. The before and after photo encouragement is the fourth one. And then we've got food group elimination. Is it asking you to cut out carbohydrates? Uh, that's something to be concerned about. Your, 
carbohydrate intake helps build your muscles and fuel them. It's necessary to have glycogen on board. Sixth one, supplements. Are you taking something out and then you have to invest all this money into these additional supplements that truthfully aren't necessary? And then the last one is weight loss of focus. So use these seven things as a checklist. If they're present, I would be looking elsewhere for some sort of food planning system or, or meal planning or some sort of eating style. You don't need any of that. So write these down. And the next time you come across something, use it as a checklist. Yes or no. If it's yes, what things are there? What buzz, buzzwords are they using? How often do they ask me to weigh myself? All of those things. So I hope this episode was helpful and we look forward to talking with you again. Thanks and have a great day. What's the best way to reduce? Eat plenty or starve yourself? Starve yourself? Wrong. A half empty stomach causes hunger tantrums. Now with the RDX full stomach reducing plan, you fill your stomach, avoid hunger tantrums, lose excess weight naturally and fast. And safe, pleasant tasting RDX tablets contain no dangerous drugs, no hormones. So if your doctor has told you to lose weight, get RDX at your drugstore now. <laughs> What does any of this have to do with the dangers of diet culture? Absolutely everything. The danger of diet culture is so much sneakier and deeper than just our relationship with food and our bodies. It's about trust. Diet culture has made us lose trust in our body signals. The exact body signals that took care of us as babies and helped us survive are the same signals we are told to ignore, deprive, push past, to have more willpower. Diet culture has made us lose trust in our ability to make decisions when it comes to food and exercise. We don't listen when we have hunger pains at 7 p.m. because you can't eat past a certain time. Or when we are injured, we still go out and work out because we can push past the pain and we have body goals. Diet culture has intervened and disrupted our relationship with our bodies and self. It has caused us to not trust what we feel in our bodies and instead trust the latest science around what healthy is. This is Dr. Aaron Nitschke. This is Dr. Darian Parker. This is Decoding Diet Culture. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Decoding Diet Culture. Remember, diet culture is this set of beliefs or, or practices that, that tend to worship this ideal. Uh, something that's that's really not achievable for 99% of the population. It's often how beauty is viewed. And today I want to spend a little bit of time talking about things you can do instead of buying into the diet culture message. You will never not see diet culture. It's in Hollywood, it's in movies, it's in magazines, it's in all sorts of print and social media it's likely never going to be eradicated. And fortunately, 
there are tools that that we can use tips that we can follow to start rejecting the messages that we're confronted with or that that we come in contact with we don't have to buy into them and part of that is one acknowledging that yeah diet culture is there and it's going to be there but what is within my locus of control what is within my power and how do i make informed decisions as a consumer especially if you are not a nutrition professional and you're not a registered dietitian or maybe even a health and exercise professional that might have a little bit more in-depth knowledge of nutrition and metabolism so we've examined at this point lies of diet culture, red flags of, of diet culture messages, kind of that weight loss focus versus fat loss, and, and all of these different kind of arms of diet culture. But I want to share some tips that you can really sort of action items that, that you can apply and, and do in your everyday life to overcome the messages that you see in diet culture. So one of the first ones is learning to read food labels. And I'm not talking just looking at the nutrition facts panel. Okay, that's where you see calories per serving, fat calories, total fat, carbohydrates, protein, calcium, iron, all of these things. While that information is really important, it's, it's as important to pay attention to the ingredients of a product. So learning to read a food label is, is a really important tool because not all foods are created equal. And on the packaging, it might say gluten-free, or it might say reduced fat, or it might say all natural or something like that. That doesn't necessarily mean that the product itself has any nutritive value or is of a great benefit. Um, so reading food labels is, is really important. So start looking at the nutrition facts panel and looking at particularly look for things that are, um, if there's trans fats listed. So that's anything that says partially hydrogenated oil of any kind, that is a trans fat. There is no established healthy limit of trans fats for us to consume. They are really the most dangerous type and should be avoided. So always look on the nutrition facts panel. It trans fat is listed as, as a category, but take it a step further and look at the ingredients. The other thing to look for on a food label is the number of calories per serving and what the serving size actually is. Are you getting the biggest bang for your buck? Is a serving size seven crackers and you're getting 300 calories worth of simple carbohydrate? Might be something to examine and choose a different product. The other thing I want you to encourage, I want to encourage you to look on a food label is added sugar. There are sugars that occur naturally in products, fruit, for example, naturally occurring sugars, lactose found in milk, naturally occurring sugar. However, it's the added sugars that tend to get us into trouble because it makes up so much of the American diet. So we really need to pay attention to how much is added sugar and how much of it is naturally occurring. The second action step you can take is evaluating for highly processed foods. So Sometimes we can take the processed food conversation a little too far because really to some degree, every single product you consume is processed somehow. From the apples that you eat, they're, they're picked from the orchard, they're treated, washed, and they're shipped. That is a process. Milk, 
has to come from the cow through a processing and then jugged and sent. So all foods to some degree do have some sort of processing involved, but really looking at those foods that are really high in a number of ingredients and that really don't represent the food in its whole form. So looking at something like canned fruit in heavy syrup, we can really classify that as pretty heavily processed because it is, it is in syrup and it's, it's not naturally sweetened. It's sweetened above and beyond what exists in the can, in the fruit itself. Things like baked goods. There's a lot of really odd ingredients in there. And when I talk to my clients about this, I talk to them about, okay, what is a, what's a recipe you've, you've made cookies before. What does that recipe look like? There's like five ingredients. When you go to a bakery, like at a local Kroger's Safeway, Walmart, whatever, whatever in your, your area, and you pick up the baked good and you look at the ingredients, that list goes on and on and on and on. It's got a lot of preservatives. It's probably got a whole lot more sugar than you would add at home, those types of things. So, so looking at the number of ingredients can be a very big clue. So look for things with minimal ingredients and try to avoid as much as you can so that it doesn't make up the bulk of your diet. Is it fine to have a handful of goldfish here and there or a handful of cheeses? Of course it is. But the point is, is we just don't want that to be the bulk of somebody's intake. The third action step is looking at energy versus nutrients. How many calories are in this food? versus what's the nutrients? Am I getting fiber? Am I getting unsaturated fat, particularly omega-3 fatty acids? The American diet has a big imbalance between omega-6 and, and omega-3. So looking for those monounsaturated, those heart healthy fats is, is a really important thing. And then protein, protein gives us staying power as does fiber. So what is contained within the number of calories? Is it is a lot of nutrients or is it just a lot of calories? So those are the first three action steps you can take. The second set of action steps is moderation. So that's, that's the first one I want to, I want to focus on of this second set moderation. So I'm, I'm of the mindset, and this is what I try to work with my clients on when I coach them is that everything can belong in a diet as long as it's done in balance. So I don't come at it from the perspective of what can you take away? It's what can you add? And if, if cocktails are something that, that you enjoy, how does that fit into your balanced lifestyle versus it being an everyday thing? Same thing with dessert, same thing with pizza and burgers and things like that. Let's, let's look at moderation and how we can still consume the foods we enjoy that bring us joy, that are maybe the center of our table at celebrations and, and still keep it in balance so that it doesn't, doesn't become this overwhelming consumption of things that don't fuel our bodies appropriately or enough for the activity we are asking it to do. The fifth action step is to look for ways you can naturally sweeten foods, especially if you take the observation that your diet is super high in sugar, additional sugar, how can we bring that more into balance? And so maybe it is looking at a way to naturally sweeten a food 
with things like mashed banana in baked goods or uh, applesauce, unsweetened applesauce. Is there some way that, that you can identify how you can make that change is another action step. The next one I think is really important because diet culture seems to want to say that if you follow these messages, you will be healthy. But the thing that it, that, that culture overlooks is what is the definition of healthy? That definition, just like the definition of wellness, looks very, very different for some people. And I've had clients who define healthy as simply like deriving personal satisfaction from their job, having energy to play with their kids and sleeping well at night. Someone else's definition of healthy might be having a cholesterol level below a certain threshold because maybe they are predisposed to high cholesterol in their family. It all depends. And so instead of letting diet culture dictate or erroneously define what healthy is, you define what healthy means to you. What does it look like? And how do you know when you've achieved that level? The next action step is changing your lexicon of, of verbiage that you use related to food. And this goes back to an earlier issue that I pointed out with diet culture, and that's the dichotomous thinking, the black and white, the good and bad, the red, yellow, green. Foods don't belong in some sort of moral category. So how can you change the language that you use when you think about that? Instead of trying to categorize food as good or bad, maybe we start looking at it as what these nutrients are that, that this food can provide for me. Is it nutrient rich? Is it energy rich? Is it both? Foods can be both. Nuts, natural nut butters, those are energy dense because they're a healthy fat, but they're also very nutrient dense as well. And that's important. So instead of focusing on this food is good for me or bad for me, focus on what that, what you're getting from that food and joy is a part of that too. That's also one of the most important things is if, if you don't enjoy it, don't eat it because you're, you're going to be resentful of it. So focus on changing the language that you use to talk about food and nutrition. The last action step that I want to share with you today is redefine progress. So diet culture likes to define progress as weight loss and before and after pictures. It, it doesn't acknowledge things like better mood, greater cognitive focus, more positive outlook, sleep fitness, or energy levels. Diet culture is very much packaged in this, what does the scale say? And we've then been conditioned to think again in a dichotomous way that weight loss is good and weight gain is bad. And with the before and after pictures, we're not allowed to change is what that underlying message of diet culture is, is that we're not allowed to evolve. Bodies aren't allowed to change. We should look the same as we did in high school or college or whatever season of life you're in should look the same as a season of life that, that was 20, 25 years ago. So redefining the way that you will measure your progress. 
and, and hopefully kind of putting the scale aside because so much of it is, is not reliable. It's not a reliable indicator of where we're at health-wise, met metabolism-wise, energy-wise. So I want, I want to encourage you to, to redefine that progress. Maybe it looks like a better response to stress. Maybe it looks like feeling more encouraged to go out and be social because you feel more confident and you have more energy. Maybe it's if you're, if prior to making changes, you were sleeping six hours a night and now you're up to eight, that is a measure of progress. And it's something that also affects your definition of health. Instead of focusing on these sort of metrics, what we would, what we would refer to in the fitness center or in the fitness industry as metrics is like the weight, the numbers, the percentages, the, where you fall on a table of norms, all of that focus on how you define progress and make that what you measure each step forward by. So all of those are some action steps that you can take to start looking at diet culture as just noise. It's noise. It's over there in the corner. You acknowledge it because it's there. It's, it's like anything in life. It's like things that, that it's out of your control. You won't change it, but you can change the way you interact with it. And so it doesn't become this loud voice in your mind. And then it doesn't influence you in such a way that becomes demotivating and discouraging and, and makes you kind of fall off track because it's this, this crazy ideal that no one really ever lives up to. And if they do, it's for a very limited amount of time because it isn't sustainable. It's so hard on the body. It's so hard on the mind. So start taking some of these action steps and look at it from the perspective of, okay, what can I control? What can I do that is within my power to do versus trying to fight these overt messages that scroll through your feed? And in an earlier episode, I talked about doing a cleanse not a juice cleanse, not a pantry cleanse, but a social media cleanse. Going through your social media feeds on whatever platforms you subscribe to. And when you come across a message that kind of doesn't sit well with you in your gut, unfollow, get it out of your feed. So then it doesn't become this influential in a negative way, this influential force in your life. Start setting those aside and just getting rid of them. So those are action steps you can take today and over time. And I hope that there are other action steps that you can identify once you start looking at it from the perspective of what is it that I can control and what do I need to feel my best versus listening to these diet culture messages and kind of letting them control the mindset or allowing them to continue to control the mindset. I hope this has been helpful and we will see you next time on another episode of Decoding Diet Culture. Like legit, it sounds like a cult. Let's compare everything we know about the all-in program to the BITE model by Stephen Hassan for figuring out what is a cult. Behavior control. 
Literally the entire program is controlling your behavior. Information control. They make you sign an NDA, so information about the program can't leak. The only information that's being shared is stuff that's already been taught within the program. It's this bubble of knowledge and you can't seek anything outside of that. And you report on everything you do to your accountability coach. Thought control. Changing people's identity to fit this all-in program lifestyle. Emotional control. If you disobey even one thing, you slip one time, you are immediately exiled from the program. So the stakes are high and you feel that intensity and pressure 24 seven. In my opinion, it literally fits like to a T the bite model for cults. According to Jesse Hoffman, PhD, the diet program may also be extremely unsafe. In a tweet, Jesse said, how about let's not take diet advice from Real Housewives? Diet culture has become so intrusive in our society that we feel emboldened enough to place judgment on others publicly. Um, people feel entitled to stare at others who they may deem to be fat or obese, who are eating in public with looks of disgust or even pity. And those folks see you seeing them and it has an effect. People even feel bold enough to sometimes speak to larger folks who they do not know about their weight and offer unsolicited and unwanted advice. I mean, what the hell? Uh, this is what diet culture promotes. And because it's such a restrictive mindset, it promotes dangerous kind of yo-yo results. This is Dr. Aaron Nitschke. This is Dr. Darian Parker. This is Decoding Diet Culture. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Decoding Diet Culture. Today's focus is on a couple of different things. One, social media and its influences, particularly related to diet culture and the hashtag fitfluence and the fitfluence consequences or what I call them. So I want to tackle those two things and they're kind of loaded subjects. So again, this is just a brief overview and something to keep in mind as you start evaluating the messages that, that you see and come in contact with. I would be remiss if I did not point out first the obvious advantages of social media. And, and I think it's important to, to point those out because just like everything has a positive side and a negative side, both sides need to be equally represented. So some of the advantages of social media, the connectedness, it closes that transactional distance. And by that, it's transactional distance is really the extent to which time and distance impact our communications and interactions in any kind of virtual experience. 
it's most often referenced in the instructional design world, but it's totally applicable in this sense as we look at how people start connecting with each other. And I even see it with my students. They would rather Instagram me than call me. And that's totally fine. Um, but it just, it closes that transactional distance. You are more available. The content creation, it allows you to engage with content and create content. And that's, that's pretty awesome because I don't know about you, but I have seen a ton of really great stuff on social media from awesome, awesome individuals, writers and um, public figures and celebrities and you know, just your everyday people. And, and I think that's really important. It also increases visibility. So if you are a business owner or you're a public figure, or you have something going on that you want to share with the world, social media is a super easy free platform that allows you to increase your, your visibility. So we can't deny that that certainly is a benefit. Some of the other advantages include education. There's a, there's a lot out there we can learn. I learn a ton from different professionals that I follow, like a lot of registered dietitians or a lot of behavioral psychologists or organizational psychologists. I learn a ton from them. And you can develop other skills. Like you think about the number of things that take place in a virtual environment now, this podcast for one, it's a virtual learning opportunity. Communication is another advantage. Uh, this goes back to connectedness too, but there's this sort of instantaneous connection that social media gives us, right? Instant messages, we can easily follow up, we can set plans, we can re reorganize plans, we can cancel plans, we can make appointments and dinner reservations and all of those types of things because of social media. And lastly, it, it does allow you to share your expertise. All of us are experts at something. Maybe you are a parent who raises kids full-time. Maybe you are a, an accountant and you have incredible insight into taxes, or maybe you're a health and exercise professional like me. Social media does allow us the ability to share that expertise and to teach others. And I think that is a really important thing. However, there are downsides to social media and a few of them, and I'm really just gonna talk about specifically six, and, and really not uh, many more than that. So it's consuming. It takes time. It, it's like, have you ever gone to check Instagram and experienced the time warp it, while you're doing the doom scroll? You know, you scroll for two minutes and all of a sudden 30 minutes is gone. And you're like, what just happened? Where did I go? It's super time consuming to check it, to engage with it and to create content. It also serves as a distraction. Like, let's be honest, there are just some messages that aren't useful, supportive, or valuable. Um, they're, they're negative or they're full of falsehoods, which is really what the focus of this conversation is about, or they're just annoying. So that, that certainly is a disadvantage. Um, there's this element of inauthenticity as well. It, it makes it really difficult to determine what's real and what's not. And is somebody showing up as their authentic self or are they filtered? Um, and, and that I think is part of the fit fluence world and the fit, the hashtag fit consequences. Next is emotional disconnection. So in a virtual environment, yes, we have emojis and that's super awesome, but there, it can be really difficult to sense emotion in absence of using an emoji or 
being thoughtful with our words or saying something, how you phrase something in written language is going to come across much differently than if you were to say the same phrase in verbal communication. It's not always a safe space. You know, I think particularly as we have watched, um, you know, political ideologies collide, we've watched the development of the coronavirus, we've seen that social media isn't always a safe place. Um, and even before that, those two, I just bring those up because those are the two most relevant current events that we've dealt with, um, but it's not always a safe space. So there's a potential for attacks and criticism. And that that's one of the really hard things about social media. The very last one that I'm going to talk about and mention is the negative influence. And this is where the fit influencer or the instant influencer comes in. There can be very demoting, demotivating messages that they share. So those six are kind of your, what I call your, your proceed with caution cones. And, and it's important to bring it up and ask the question. So, so why does this matter? And if I could hashtag it right now, I would hashtag because consequences. There are fitspiration consequences. And I'm just going to point out a couple of research studies that I'm familiar with. So in 2018, Smith and Bell discovered that exposure to content can result in increased body dissatisfaction. Another study uh, point in 2015, so three years earlier, health and fitness related content is largely aimed at women, but it has consequences for men. And guess what we don't talk about enough? The consequences for men. And that content is often driven by female celebrities and fitness models which makes sense why it's being, why it's targeting women. More research has found that the, the hashtag fitspiration influencer content is perceived as setting the ideal representation of health and fitness. So for example, I use the images for goal setting. I could look like her. And this is just a very small sampling of the research that has looked at the influence of the type of content we're discussing. And I think three things are, are really important to point out here. The scariest aspect is that research indicates most users are younger. So we're talking teenagers and adolescents. That's scary. Then the second thing is there's this perceived connection between thinness and health, which I've mentioned in a couple of other episodes. There's this perception that they're somehow the same thing and they're not even close to the same thing. And, and one does not define the other. And the last one are, are the aspirations are super unrealistic. The whole, I could look like her. And the truth is in, in the health and fitness space, I could have two clients of the same demographic, the same fitness level, practicing the same nutritional habits, doing the exact same workouts. And I promise you their results will look different. So that's something to keep in mind as we are all individual. And that's not to say there's not great content out there for certain like fast workouts, 20 minute hit this, that, and the other. There certainly are. Don't get me wrong. Um, there's a ton on YouTube. There's a ton of really great stuff that people can use if it gets them moving and they enjoy it. It's more, it more comes down to the messages that are being sent. And that I think is really frustrating for, for the consumers. So I want you to think about this for a second. And when we talk about influencing versus what is effective training and effective coaching. So think about these three things just briefly. Who is the instant influencer? Like when I say instant influencer, what images pop into your head? 
Do they promote a certain thing? What language do they use? Are there certain phrases, catchphrases, buzzwords? Are there things that they use that you're like, oh, huh? And it, it kind of stops you, stops you dead in your tracks to think about it. So think about those for just, just a second. All right, let's talk about the Insta influencer. So these characteristics are pretty common across the board. So the Insta influencer in the true sense of the Insta influencer, they are largely uncredentialed, meaning they do not have a certification that could somehow be related to the state that they live in. Um, there are some states that don't have a statute requiring someone who practices nutrition to be a registered dietitian. That's terrifying. Check your state and see if it's one of those. Same thing with personal training. Personal training is not legally sort of defined necessarily. Um, there's, there's nothing out there that says a personal trainer has to have a degree in this. And that's kind of a weakness of the industry in and of itself. Hoping that will change in the future, that we kind of up our game a little bit in the requirements. So largely uncredentialed. The other thing that drives me nuts about the insta-influencer fitspiration person is the scantily clad outfits, very questionable attire. So the booty shorts, the shirtless, muscle-bound, sweating, or, you know, sports bra-looking swimsuit people, that image says something, either consciously or unconsciously, to the person who is consuming it and being confronted with that message. You can get a real great workout and you can lead a real great workout without being half naked. And the other piece of that is, is that imagery and that clothing option is not culturally responsive. It's not culturally sensitive. So you could potentially be disenfranchising a large segment that you could otherwise recruit if you made a different decision in how you promoted yourself as a professional. But again, these people are not professionals. The other common characteristic is they're backed by an MLM. A lot of multi-level marketing supports these Insta influencers because there are a lot of supplement-based companies. So watch that. Is it a pyramid scheme? If it sounds like a pyramid scheme, it's probably a pyramid scheme. Overly complex workout routines. And this is where I get a little soapboxy. Because having been a personal trainer and a health coach for nearly 20 years now, and having had a number of clients and taught a number of higher education courses and led workshops and presentations, the basics still work. A routine does not need to be complex. It does not need to be flashy, and it does not need to be extremely difficult for it to be effective. And the Fitfluencer likes to make it look like super, super hard. And they also like to underestimate the skill level it requires. So their beginner level isn't truly beginner. It's more intermediate. Their intermediate level, level is really more advanced. Their advanced level, really more for your elite athletes. So the overly complex routine, not necessary. The messages, which I talked about in a previous episode, and a couple of them, the messages lack science. And I think one example I gave in a previous podcast episode was about apple cider vinegar. A lot of hype. Apple cider vinegar could truly be considered a buzzword or a buzz phrase. 
The messages lack science, and I like to refer to it as quackery or flabby science, meaning there's science, and this Insta influencer has taken creative liberties with the outcome of whatever science they're looking at, whether that's cherry picking data, it's wrongly interpreting the outcome, or it's simply trying to infer causation, which really can't happen. And instead of saying this hypothesis was supported or it was not supported, both outcomes of a study are equally important to the body of literature. So all of this comes down to this diet culture mentality, which is really what, what they're, what they're rooted in. So, you know, the don't eat carbs, eating after 8 PM is bad. This food is good. Or this food fits in the red category. And the list goes on, on, and on, on into perpetuity. Let's look at the instant influencer messaging, since that was a bullet point, bullet point characteristic about diet culture. So, so primarily there are six things that I've picked out that look at the characteristics of the instant influencer messaging. So proprietary is thrown around a lot, which just means shh, nobody knows what's in it. And the manufacturer is not bound to tell you what's in it because it's proprietary ingredients, proprietary information. Detox, that's always a part of the conversation. And what these professionals, quote unquote, and I say that lightly, fail to do is recognize that the human body is naturally a detox center. You've got three systems that take care of this for you. Your integumentary or your skin, that system, the liver and your kidneys. Essentially detox tea creates really expensive urine and it's not necessary. There's no tea out there that's going to flush you out. So that's one part of the message. I've mentioned this before, the weight or size oriented, there's a lot of conversation in instant influencing and in diet culture that it's about the size, like trying to make yourself smaller if you're speaking to like a, a feminine audience or make yourself bigger and more in charge and in control if you're a masculine, if you're speaking to the masculine side. Both, both are wrong thinking. The next message, part of the message is all about the image or the content. And in a previous episode, I talked about how the Insta influencer or the fit influencer has very shallow content. And, and that's because it's never educational. It's always about the image and the flashy image and the pretty image and the Photoshopped and filtered image. The primary goal, so the fifth one, the primary goal is selling. So Insta influencers, fit influencers, like to make something transactional, meaning their consumers are paying for a service. That is also true in the health and exercise space. We do sell a service, but we change it from transactional to relational. And that's the difference. These big, these big time influencers don't care about you. They don't care about the goals. They don't care about behavior change. They care about fast, instant results. That's weight or size oriented. So they are primarily focused on selling and recruiting, not building rapport and relationships. And one of the last messages that I've seen that's pretty consistent is that they're, they're all about the thin slash muscle bound somehow equates to happiness. 
which doesn't make any sense. So these types of messages always seem to paint that picture that if a person was just this much smaller or this much bigger, or my favorite non-science term that, that fitfluencers use is toned. There's no such thing as muscle tone. There's muscle definition, there's muscle atrophy, there's muscle strength, there's muscle, muscle weakness. There's no such thing as muscle tone. You will not hear a legitimate health and exercise professional use that term as a descriptor of somebody's physique. So those are the six characteristics that are part of the actual messaging of diet culture, those characteristics that you can kind of pick out if you are to pay attention. I want to bring up their workout designs because one, one of the, the characteristics that I mentioned about the instant influencer person themselves is overly complex routines. But I want to dive into that and share with you the six characteristics that relate to a, a person's, if they're an instant influencer, their workout design. So the overly complex movements is the number one. So again, this means neglecting the basics and the value of mobility and stability training before making something complex. And not everything needs to be complex. The basics still work. The second characteristic, random design. I've gone through a few of the, the workouts and I'm like, what is the purpose? What goal is this connected to? There doesn't really seem to be a logic or or order, or it's, it's really not thoughtfully programmed or connected to a specific goal. It just happens to look good because it's challenging and it's hard. And then people can say something also very diet culture-y. I burned a lot of calories. The third one, complex equipment combos. Again, the basics still work, but an effective workout doesn't require bands, balls, balance pads, dumbbells, cordless jump ropes, chin-up bars, all of that in one workout. So getting the job done with less is, is a way to consider the cost to the consumer and the time it takes to complete the workout. If you're having to move from this equipment to that equipment and, and back around, that takes a lot of time. The fourth one, fancy or flashy. I've used that word, th those two words several times. So these, these workouts often look really great when they're performed by somebody who is literally in top physical shape. It is not going to look that way for your average consumer. And they don't really fail or they don't really succeed in making sure that it's scaled to a certain level. So it looks fancy and it is flashy. But again, it looks fantastic when somebody else in top physical shape is, is doing that. The fifth one, it overpromises and under delivers. This is one of my favorite ones. So an example, an influencer demonstrating, we'll call it a 20 minute booty burn, another buzz, buzz phrase for you, in booty shorts. And they, the message is, if you do this consistently in 21 days, you'll look like X. I assure you, people who are in top physical shape did not achieve those results without serious nutrition manipulation. And by doing a 20 minute workout three days a week, there's a difference between training for health and training for physique. And they often will overpromise and underdeliver. 
And the last one we've talked about before in all previous episodes is the fast results. This is probably the biggest key here. And I've mentioned this before, no two clients are going to respond this, to the same workout or the same nutritional guidance the same way. It's, it's, it's not, it's, it's just not true. And, and truthfully, it's not about speed of achieving results. It's about consistency because that is how you get to the sustainability factor. The best program is one a person enjoys and it's going to perform consistently. And these workout design, designs aren't often focused on that. So to sum up, the influencer tends to focus on that selling component, delivering content that's very image heavy. It does continue to support those socially prescribed standards and the off-brand workout designs, meaning all of those, those six characteristics I just talked about in the Insta workout design. So what can happen if we take all this together and add it up? The outcome is that it can generate feelings of imposter syndrome for consumers and professionals in my field, believe it or not. So one of the, the thoughts I want to leave you with in this episode, because I think it's just a hell of a quote, and it's by Jonathan Goodman, who is the founder of the PTDC, and he's an author. He's from Canada. Um, I highly recommend looking up his work. Um, it, I like the authentic nature and realism in his words. And he says, despite what Instagram will lead you to believe, when it comes to fitness, the most advanced thing you can do is the basics consistently. So this right here is the truth. Performing the basics consistently while also being mindful of neat, so moving more throughout the day versus sed being sedentary, nutrition, sleep, stress management, social wellness, all of that, that is what will advance physical fitness and overall wellness. Highly recommend checking out Jonathan Goodman's work. He's got a lot of really great perspectives on diet culture, on fit fluencing, on fit inspiration and fit consequences. So I hope that you found this discussion helpful and I hope that you will be prepared to go out there and have this conversation with your friends, your family, and just engage in it because that's one way we raise that level of awareness is just by talking about it and being brave enough to talk about it. Why not? But uh, it's just you never can tell what the computer has decided.
of the dangers of diet culture, I think about how when I was young, my body was something I enjoyed being in. I loved the ability to run and be barefoot in the summer and taste delicious raspberries and feel the sun on my face, smell the salt air of the ocean. And as I got older, I began to understand that my body was also something that other people had opinions about. And it became more and more challenging to remember that it, how I feel in it, my presence, my experience, and the gift that it is, like I'm very healthy, is not less important and, and maybe is the most important thing as compared to what it looks like and how other people perceive and receive it. So that would be, I think, the the biggest danger of diet culture to me is it dissociates us from our experience of being in our bodies to evaluating them based on how other people react or seem to perceive and value how we look. This is Dr. Aaron Nitschke. This is Dr. Darian Parker. This is Decoding Diet Culture. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Decoding Diet Culture. Today's focus is on hashtag fitfluence. There's a lot of research out there on the influence of that particular hashtag or the fitness influencer, the Insta influencer, the, the dot-com personal trainer, the, you know, somebody that promotes themselves as something that really they, they lack the credibility, the credential, the education, the experience to, to truly back up. And they're very much a part of diet culture in many ways. They're either promoting it or they are subscribing to it, or they simply reinforce it. And there are eight red flags I want to share when consumers are sitting down to evaluate certain Instagram accounts or social media feeds, or, or even just like fitness influencers out there. I think these eight red flags are really important. Some of them are not super obvious while others are definitely obvious, but part of becoming an informed consumer is being able to recognize these little signs here and there uh, that are that are trying to recruit you to believe in a certain way or think a certain way or do certain things. And part of overcoming diet culture, or at least not allowing it to control the decisions that we make or rob us of joy, is developing an awareness of really what the underpinnings of a message are or those red flags. So there are eight of them that I want to share with you in this episode. The first one is extremism. And the message here is it's packaged as always do this or never do this. And that is just so unrealistic for humans. We, we don't live in that black and white world. Human behavior in general is super complex and it is absolutely more multifaceted than these influencers actually understand, because again, they're not generally credentialed professionals. So their extremism isn't a place most humans can live or at least live sustainably. Our behavior is influenced by the environment, by the mood, by social influences, by all sorts of things, sleep or lack thereof, 
there are a lot of reasons that behavior shifts and changes. And it has very little to do with willpower, which is inherently limited. It isn't just like somebody has willpower or doesn't have willpower. And that doesn't explain why someone is able to make a change or is not able to make a change. It's not, it's not that simple. So extremism on either end of the spectrum is dangerous to say the least, because again, it's not meeting people where they're at. So look at messages. And if there's this never eat this or always do this, yeah, I take a pause and maybe not follow that account. The next one is really shallow content. That's the second red flag. There's really no educational piece to it. Health and exercise professionals who are credentialed, practiced, professional, they see themselves as an educator, not just somebody who helps them write a program or coaches them on nutrition or behavior change. It's, it's an educational process that has to take place for behavior change to be sustainable. So it isn't just about knowledge because knowledge doesn't equal behavior change. People have to have skills, tools, and practice in order to implement what they're learning and to sustain it and, and weave it into their everyday life. So Insta influencers or these fitfluencers, hashtag fitfluence, they very much focus on very shallow content. And there's really no educational component and there's no conversation about why behavior change is so hard. They don't normalize that it's difficult to make a change. They make it look simple. They make it look superficial and do not acknowledge, probably because they don't know to, because again, they're not versed in behavior change, science and principles, or the process, the nonlinear process of change. They think it's simply matter. It's a matter of making a decision to change and then boom, you can do it. It's not that way. And when that when that content is that shallow people and people feel like they can engage with it, but then they don't live up to those standards or they somehow fall short of something the fitfluencer is saying is super easy. Then they just spiral downward into more cognitive distortions that ultimately don't get them anywhere. And it doesn't help them move forward in their journey. So that's the second red flag is the shallow content. They also refer to new theories or products as the next best thing, or this is the answer to all of your problems. So it's keto. That's the answer to all your problems. It's this detox tea. That is the answer to all your problems. It's taking melatonin. That's the answer to all your problems. And in addition to that, um, they, they have no reference. They have no frame of reference. It's just a, a phrase or a statement that they're making that they likely heard from another fitfluencer. And then that makes people think, oh, if I just can do this, then this will happen. Again, it oversimplifies the process of change and what it takes for someone to truly engage in making healthy decisions as part of a lifestyle practice and not just these series of isolated events. So that's the third red flag it's the next best thing. It's flashy. It's going to answer your problems. It's going to solve your, your concerns and your issues. And it's just not the way behavior or health works. The next one is not backing up any controversial claims. So there's a lot of controversial claims out there in the health and fitness industry and legitimate health and fitness professionals have differing perspective perspectives on things. 
but fitfluencers tend to be on one side or the other. So they'll make a claim about something. And then where's the evidence? And because their account is flashy and pretty and Photoshopped or filtered or insert whatever enhancement descriptor you want there, they, they don't have the science, the body of evidence to say this works. It's kind of like, I'll give an example, apple cider vinegar. There's absolutely no legitimacy behind telling someone you need to take apple cider vinegar to lose weight. First of all, it can cause gastric diet, gastric distress because it's highly acidic and it's super concentrated. If you want to try apple cider vinegar, make a vinaigrette and use that as the vinegar. Um, but they make these controversial claims that really might have some research to them, but the results are not efficacious. They don't support that claim, but they don't back it up with any kind of legitimate evidence, science, or even an outside unbiased opinion. That's another red flag. The other thing related to research that fitfluencers really like to do is cherry pick. So by that is they will take one line in one scientific study and take it completely out of context and then say, this is, this is gospel. This is what we all need to be doing in order to achieve X, Y, and Z. And we call that cherry picking, only picking out the data that you want to see or that you hope will support the claim that you're trying to make, even though it's not a broad spectrum of evidence, it's not really looking at the research and questioning the research. So research is great, but every design, every study has its flaw. Absolutely. Why? Because humans are designing the studies and because we, it's impossible to think of everything. There are very well-designed, well-controlled studies out there looking at a number of parameters related to health, fitness, nutrition, exercise physiology, behavior change, all of that. But it's when we cherry pick instead of looking at the entirety of the evidence and drawing a conclusion. And when this happens, the cherry picking, fitfluencers tend to infer causation instead of recognizing that, oh, this study had a correlation or an association or a relationship with, that is not cause and effect. And you can't really, with research, say X causes Y. You need to look at the all the evidence in front of you. And fitfluencers don't really do that. It's like they, they search on Google and they find this article that says something. And then all of a sudden it's like, I'm, you know, I'm going to curate this content and I'm going to put it out there for my consumers because it, it's obviously proven or, or so to speak. That's the other key word is proven. Research really doesn't prove or disprove. It supports or doesn't support a hypothesis. So fitfluencers are pretty famous for being like, so such and such has proven that this, this detox tea works miracles or insert whatever. So looking for that language is, is really, really important. The next one. Fitfluencers are really into a pro, like kind of promoting this, it's my way approach that will work. And there's no room for other approaches. So they kind of dismiss everything else that's out there. And it's packaging their program, their nutrition package, whatever it happens to be. 
and selling it in a way that's like, if you do all of these things, A, B, C, D, E, and F, then guaranteed you will get these results. When in fact, again, that's oversimplifying behavior change. And it's also taking a cookie cutter approach with influencing people's behaviors or mindsets. That cookie cutter approach is not going to work for every individual. And that is because we all have different personalities. We all have different perceived barriers that are standing in our way. We all live differently. We are all subject to different types of influences. What influences one person might not influence another person. We all have different circles of social support. Some people have no social support. Many of us have access to certain things, whereas other populations may not have access to fitness centers, to the services that they need. So it's, it's kind of saying, if you don't do this, there's nothing else that will work. There's no room for variability. There's no room for flexibility. There's no room for ownership is almost what that, how that can read. And the truth is there's, there's no one best approach. Everybody is going to approach change differently and they're going to, to experience the peaks and valleys. And that is okay. That is part of an authentic journey through change. Fitfluencers approach is not authentic. It's like, it worked for me. So obviously I can make that generalizable to the rest of you. And that's not how data is applied. That is not how humans operate. There has to be some ownership with the changes that, that you as an individual want to make and feel compelled and prepared to make. It can't be this my way or the highway. And in fact, promoting something like that goes in direct opposition to what health coaching really is. We try to help individuals uncover their own strengths. And we recognize that our clients and consumers are the experts on themselves. It's not the other way around. We, the exercise and health professional, might be the content expert. That doesn't mean we know what's going to work best for every single individual that comes into our office or that, you know, in any room and in any Zoom, it can be very, very different. So that is another red flag is the my way or the highway. The next one, focus exclusively on short-term fast results. There's a sense of immediacy that fitfluencers like to push. So for example, this testimonial is, I did this and I lost six pounds in a week. Well, that could be explained by the fact that you cut out every source of carbohydrate and you lost metabolic water. Perhaps you had a lot of inflammation going on and that is somehow reduced now, but is it sustainable? That's the biggest thing. So behavior is a process. It's not a series of isolated events. That's a choice. And when the focus is on those short-term fast results, they kind of hook people because it's like, oh, I got these results in seven to 10 days. But then what happens? Those results tend to plateau. And then we kind of sometimes see the reverse happen where people gain back what they lost and then some, and then they're even more discouraged. And then they start questioning their enoughness and they start questioning like, why am I not good enough? Why can't I do this? Everybody else can do it. Why, why, why? 
So focusing on those results, again, is kind of related to the whole weight loss versus fat loss. We want to see that number on the scale go down, according to Fitfluencers. Legitimate health and exercise professionals know better, and we focus on the process, the action steps a person can take to create sustainability in healthy practices. So that's the other red flag. Another one, supplements. Supplements, supplements, supplements. Many times Fitfluencers have their own either brand of supplements or they tend to promote a certain brand. When it comes to supplements, the only health professionals I would truly suggest you trust and lean to is a registered dietitian. They have access to all sorts of third-party companies that are verified that you can, you can pretty much guarantee the quality of these products. Whereas if you go to a nutrition store and you're talking to some clerk behind the counter who really has no training in education other than what the internal training happened to be for that company that he works, he or she works for, it's not going to get you the results that you want. And chances are you're going to be spending a lot of money for something you don't need. Nobody should have to spend a ton of money on supplements if we're incorporating balanced practices. That's not to say that certain things like maybe an additional quality protein powder might be really useful for you. A probiotic for gut health might be really useful. Magnesium might be really useful. Vitamin D, if you live someplace where you're not out in the sun, it's cold all the time, it's dark sometimes um, throughout the year, definitely there's a place and there's a time and there's a rationale for all supplements. But with Fitfluencers, it's literally like, take this recover protein, take, take this energize, take this, take that, take blah, 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 blah. All of these things that you end up spending hundreds of dollars on. And they're not real food products and they're not heavily regulated. Sometimes they're not even regulated at all. Um, so, so keep that in mind as a red flag, is the supplement 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 situation. Supplements are designed to do just that supplement, not replace something. So that is something to, to really watch out for is like, I'm taking away this. Are these supplements being used as a replacement or a supportive mechanism? Because I'm working on shifting whatever practice that happens to be whatever nutritional practice. The other piece of the supplements is what I've noticed is with Fitfluencers, they will, again, going back to one of the other red flags, which is cherry picking data or presenting some sort of clinical trial that truthfully um, is biased research. Because if you look into who funded the study, sometimes it's funded by someone who already manufactures supplements. Obviously that person has a financial stake in the game and they have an interest, a financial interest and a PR interest in demonstrating efficacy with their product. So that's something to be aware of too, is if you see something being promoted, a particular supplement or product, research it. Office of Dietary Supplements is a great place. The FDA is a great place. Asking a registered dietitian, not even a personal trainer, not a health coach, a, a registered dietitian. They are really the ones that have the scope of practice to discuss that and recommend it. Other health and exercise professionals don't. 
we can, for example, tell our consumers and educate them on the dangers of supplement use and let them know our scope of practice is limited in such a way that we cannot in good faith recommend anything. However, I can refer you to someone who will be able to do those things. So keep that in mind. Supplements are another big red flag for these fitfluencers. There are many more red flags out there related to fitfluencing um, and, and these instant influencers and kind of these fitness, fitness gram models. Um, and there's too many to mention in one single episode, but these were the ones that were, that really are the highlight and seem to be the most recurring and the ones that are the most obvious when you evaluate it from an evidence-based perspective. But from that consumer perspective, these accounts look great. These people are in great shape. They sound like they know what they're talking about, but they don't have a lot of science behind it. And that is something that is a concern. And instead of sitting here trying to fight diet culture, that's we can fight it all we want. Um, we can fight it on multiple levels, but is that really where our energy is best invested? The return on that investment is going to yield something very low when in fact we can just kind of divert our attention from diet culture and we can start recognizing and calling out these flags, these, these kind of BS markers, like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound legitimate. And here's why. And I wanted to provide those, those eight red flags because it is a question that I get all the time from students and, and family and friends and colleagues like, hey, what do you think of this? Or I saw this person, what do you think? And it's, it's hard not to come out and say that is, that is not credible. That has no credibility. Um, instead, you have to take the educational approach and say, well, these are kinds of the things to look out for and think for yourself so that you can make an informed decision. And ultimately trust your gut. If it sounds too good to be true and doesn't really require any drastic changes to behavior, well, chances are the results will be very short-lived and that we'll end up with even greater disappointment than we started in discouragement. And then honestly, consumers are not even at square one anymore. They're actually like at the basement level and that's not what we want. So these are the red flags to look out for. And we will talk to you again in another episode of Decoding Diet Culture. You've got plenty of time to get back to the ship. Use the directional. And above all, stay calm. My name's Brooke. I'm 44 years old and have struggled all of my adult life with issues stemming from the toxic influence of diet culture. Issues that really began in my late teens, early adulthood. I am also a fitness professional and early on this career choice actually exacerbated my issues in many ways. I can see now it's because of how pervasive disordered eating is among fitness professionals. There is so much pressure to look a certain way and the industry is rife with diet culture messaging, programs to get that bikini body, workouts designed to earn your food or programmed with a focus on calorie burn, clean meal plans and 
detoxes to reset your body. As an aside, much of this is all outside the scope of practice for fitness professionals, but it's done without regard anyway. I've worked hard to unlearn behaviors and deprogram these beliefs that my worth is tied to my ideal body image. Like, what even is that? I focus on what my body can do, and I'm super proud of how strong I am. But I'm sad and frustrated because as hard as it, um, as it has been for me to navigate this world as an adult who logically knows better, it's even harder for young people, the digital natives who have grown up in the age of Instagram and TikTok. They are constantly bombarded with toxic content from so-called experts, and a number of studies have confirmed what we already know, that this content can be harmful. Adolescence is a critical period of psychosocial development, and I'm so sad to think of how many kids are going to go down the rabbit hole of diet culture like I did. I look at my daughters and want them to love themselves and not struggle for 20 years like I have. Alexa, what is diet culture? Here's something I found on the web. According to thriveglobal.com, diet culture is a set of beliefs that worship thinness and particular body shapes. This is Dr. Aaron Nitschke. This is Dr. Darian Parker. This is Decoding Diet Culture. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Decoding Diet Culture. And today we're going to talk about how to celebrate the non-scale victories and more importantly, what those types of victories are. And the reason this topic is important is because it is an aspect of diet culture. And one of their mantras is that weight loss is good and weight gain is bad and that we're not meant to evolve over time or change. Um, and there's a lot of before and after pictures and everything is, is so focused on the physical or on the, the scale. And in fact, one of the things many fad diets and or diet culture programs promote is weighing yourself every day. And there's a reason why that's not effective. And as a result, many people who engage in these diet culture programs, thinking that they're doing something really good for their health, right? Is they become obsessed with tracking their weight. They become overly hyper-focused on what that number on the scale says. And if it ticks up, that's bad. If it ticks down, it's good. And that's something to celebrate. And it's just not the way that, that body weight works. And again, body, body weight and body composition are two different things. And weight loss does not mean fat loss. Likewise, weight gain does not mean fat gain. Those are two different things. And, and the reason I think weight has become such an important metric, and you see it when you go to the doctor's office, right? The first thing they do is put you on the scale. And to me, that is one of the most annoying things in the world, because really, what are you collecting? N not usable data, that's for sure. But the number on the scale, just like your resting heart rate or your blood pressure reading, it's, it's quantifiable, it's tangible, meaning it can be compared to similar people of the similar age, gender, ethnicity, whatever. And so it's this quantifiable thing and research loves to quantify things, especially in the sciences. So 
it's it's just not a very telling measure. So so in absence of other metrics, weight doesn't tell us anything. And when I first started out as a health and exercise professional, of course you took body weight because that's what you did. It was again quantifiable. It was a metric. It was a resting measurement. But as time goes on, you you start shifting your perspective a little bit and you really see it for what it is. It's a number on the scale. And truthfully, at any given point in the day, it represents your relationship with gravity. It does not represent in any way alone, a picture of your health, your metabolic fitness, or your happiness. So it's important to really, when you're striving for progress in your physical fitness goals, it's important to keep in mind that it is just that it's just a, a number. It's a quantifiable number that, that is influenced by so many things. Um, you know, the hydration levels, all of those things can, can really influence whether the scale goes up the next day or down the next day. Uh, so it's, it's really not very reliable. So one of the things that I work with clients on and what I teach my personal trainer students about is, is how to capture a person's picture of health in a more holistic way, in a more telling way, a more revealing way. And to do that, I have them focus on things that are non-scale victories. And by that, I mean those things that, that maybe are less quantifiable. They're less measurable in terms of a tape measure or a scale or some other sort of device. And in fact, when I take body measurements, girth measurements or a waist to hip ratio or something like that with clients, I don't even use a tape measure. I use a ribbon and I mark on the ribbon where it is because there's something triggering to many people. And that, this is not the case for everyone, but I'm speaking from my, my platform, my experience. There's something triggering for someone if the number isn't what they perceive to be socially acceptable and a certain waist at this metric and a certain, you know, chest size at this measurement of this metric. And so I use a ribbon and then I just put tick marks on the ribbon with each subsequent measurement I take over time. And I teach my clients to do the same thing. We don't even deal with a tape measure. And this is not to say that gathering information like that isn't useful. It certainly can be, but we need to have a a broader perspective about what it means versus assigning it a label like, well, this person's weight on this day is this, they're this tall. So obviously they're overweight. Mm, no. <laughs> and that gets into the whole BMI conversation, which really isn't a part of this, this particular talk today. So non-scale victories and why are they so important to, to celebrate? Well, because they, they are this, this sort of holistic view of how a person feels about themselves. And how we measure that has really nothing to do with stepping on the scale. And in fact, when I've worked with clients on behavior change, I've had them get rid of the scale or I've had them put the scale someplace, whether it's their garage, it's their basement, it's someplace that is not at the forefront of their attention. So we can kind of get away from the addiction to that, that number, because that number is not going to tell us progress. So when it comes to measuring your own progress, I want you to think about a few things first. You are a whole person. You are not your weight. So the other things that make up you as a person. So the questions I want you to consider 
And these are the non-scale metrics, quote unquote, that I want you to start thinking about gathering for yourself. Sleep. Ask yourself, do you feel rested when you rise? And pay attention to how your energy is throughout the day. Is there a certain period in the day where energy starts to wane and you notice habitually you've reached for that extra cup of coffee and start observing that overall energy, not just when you wake up, but when you're tackling any kind of task or say you're out grocery shopping, or maybe you're out in the park and you're playing soccer with your kids or you're walking the dog or insert whatever kind of example or scenario you want there. What does your energy feel like? Do you feel exhausted or do you feel, do you feel renewed? And then another non-scale measurement to take is, have you noticed any change in your level of interest or social activities in the past, whatever period and really tune into maybe why that is. And then mind is another non-scale. What's the cognitive function like? How focused are you? How engaged do you feel in your daily tasks at work, at home, socializing, doing anything? Do you, do you feel like your focus is there? How are you feeling about projects at work? Those types of things. The other non-scale piece I really like to have clients and students focus on is their stress level. And I use a scaling question for this. And you can certainly put this in a first person perspective and say, on a scale of one to 10, how stressed do I feel? And then you kind of start to peel back the layers and figure out, okay, so this is something that's stressing me out. I've got this upcoming deadline and I'm not really quite sure how to tackle it. I'm really nervous about it. Um, I'm not, I'm not really sure what to do. I'm going to go ahead and give myself a six. And then we kind of move on from there. We look at things like how anxious some, you feel or a client feels. Is that something that, that is related to maybe they're not sleeping? Maybe they're not fueling enough. And then I have them rate their, their joy factor. How joyful do they feel when they're exercising, when they're at work? when they're at home and when they're eating. And other areas that are non-scale are really related to how you're fueling the body. So I, I ask about hydration. I ask about food and nutrition. And when we start asking these questions that relate to all aspects of a person's well-being, we start to gather these puzzle pieces. And when we really take that like a, a broad sweep and cast a wide net in the information that we're gathering beyond simply having them step on a scale and maybe taking some skinfold measurements, we start to see what patterns are developing and what might be the issue. So I noticed that you rated yourself as not sleeping very well. You also rated yourself low on cognitive function and energy throughout the day. Perhaps the root cause of those other two things is the fact that we're not sleeping very well. And maybe we need to take a look at what our fitness, our sleep fitness routine looks like. Are we doom scrolling on the phone until 10 PM and rising at 5 AM? Um, are you getting up a lot at night to use the bathroom? Are you having a lot of alcohol before bed? Alcohol, believe it or not, though it is a sedative, disrupts sleep. And having caffeine too early in the morning causes a cortisol spike. 
And we want cortisol to raise naturally because that really is the um, kind of the, the biological caffeine, if you will. Uh, and and it, it helps us function. It helps us go throughout the day. So having caffeine too early in the morning upon rising can, can certainly impact energy levels throughout the day. So trying to take a holistic approach at how you are one defining progress and how you're then measuring it. Because if you're only defining progress by weight loss, you're missing out on all these other metrics that really make a whole lot more sense and tell a much greater story than simply stepping on the scale. And that scale is going to constantly go up and constantly go down. And it is all based on what you put into your body and what you excrete or the, the minerals that you're taking in, um, inflammation in the body, anything like that. So when I celebrate these non-scale victories, I celebrate things first and foremost that are energy, mindset, sleep pattern, joy around interacting with other people, and your overall engagement in other things of interest. And we start to see this kind of like interweaving or this sort of interconnectedness between all of those areas and how they affect progress. So even though in the past, historically and socially, weight loss or that number has been something that has been the focus. And, and I think in large part, because that's the diet industry. At one point in time, we really did not know much about managing weight and really what it meant to manage weight. And manage weight isn't about keeping your body at a certain number. It really is about the overall picture of metabolic health. And what does that look like? And um, how are you feeling? So when I ask clients, how, how will you know you've been successful? I have them phrase it in terms of energy, focus, motivation, sleep, and just general feelings of well-being. So it's more about how they feel versus what they can see on a scale. Now, that's not to say that weighing yourself is bad or wrong. It's not, but a lot of people, it's a trigger for them. And I've even told clients when they go to the doctor, if it is triggering for them, and it sets them back in terms of their motivation and their adherence and their kind of perspective on themselves, their body respect. I tell them, tell your doctor, unless it is medically necessary, do not weigh me. I've refused to be weighed a few times. And mostly because I, I just, I had just eaten a big meal. It was three o'clock in the afternoon. And I knew that that number was not going to tell my doctor the valuable information she needed to know in order to evaluate my health. So it's okay to be like, you know what? No. The other option is if they weigh you, just simply tell them, I don't, I'm not interested in knowing that number. I want to talk more about my overall energy, how I feel, how I'm eating, how I'm sleeping. And if I'm moving enough and if other things are under control, like the blood pressure and the metabolic health, meaning like your good cholesterol and, and not so good cholesterol and your triglyceride levels and your thyroid function, kidney function, liver function, all of that is all part of metabolic health. So the next time you're trying to imagine progress and what that looks like, start thinking outside of the scale or off the scale, I should say, start thinking about what are other areas 
that you feel could use an improvement. Energy, sleep are probably going to be at the top. And those two are very interrelated. Getting enough water and honestly getting enough food. People often make the mistake about restricting. And I only need to take in 1,200 or 1,500 calories. That is the amount a toddler needs. You are not a toddler. Now, of course, that depends on your activity level and whatnot. And that's a topic for a different day. But nonetheless, approaching it from that very restrictive mindset can cause other issues and actually not make weight loss possible if that is something that someone is striving towards. So think about it. You're a whole person. You are not the number on the scale and start looking at like at the end of a a week, or maybe it's two weeks and you look at your progress, start saying, okay, look back and be like, okay, so my energy was really good. The first part of the week, midweek, I kind of hit a sticking point because I had a really big project at work and I wasn't sleeping well. You can start tying back all of these like little, little feelings to certain moments in your week. And then you can really start to identify those patterns and ways and strategies to overcome them. If we only stick to the number on the scale, we're, we're taking a very narrow and myopic view of what health is. And, and that is just one piece of it. And it's not even a very reliable piece that tells us, oh, this person's healthy and this person's not based on this number. It, it doesn't work that way. Body weight and, and body composition and metabolism are far more complicated than that. So be sure to pay attention to the non-scale things that are going well for you and how you can incorporate those into the progress that you're making. And we will see you next time on another episode of Decoding Diet Culture. Friends, here's an amazing free offer for everyone who's overweight. Even though you've tried other methods and failed, you can still lose ugly fat fast. Now, thousands can tell you that the calometric reducing formula is the only safe, sure, effective way to reduce. This package includes the Wonder 10-Day Diet that lets you eat three delicious meals a day, plus a bedtime snack, and uh, even includes a jog for your willpower. And yet you take only three calometric tablets per day. And now here's that sensational free offer I was going to tell you about. A 30-day supply of wonderful calometric tablets, a certified $3.50 value, when you buy the regular calometric way to weight control. You save $3.50. That's a $7 value for only $3.50, a 50% saving. And how can you get your free bottle of calometric tablets Just send in this calometric box top with your name and address, and your druggist will give you a postage-paid envelope already addressed to the calometric company. So don't lose hope. Lose weight. Get calometric reducing formula at your drugstore. Send the box top in the free post-page envelope, and get your $3.50 bottle of calometric tablets absolutely free. Friends, believe me when I say don't wait. Act right now. All cops listen to this album, don't give us tickets. We'll give you donuts if you don't give us a ticket. Uh-huh. I, I, I remember I was teasing, little gums bleeding. Friday evening, it was all about eating. When I became a teen, it was all about beefing. Now I'm ready for the world. 
trying to sink my teeth in Stacking extra cheese like my pizza on the weekend This is how they eat to live But not Elijah's teachings The pig's still poison But we didn't believe him Made a pot full of cops With bullets as the seasoning What's on the menu? Cause it changed every season Snitch sickles every summer And the freezer's where we leave them I had oodles and noodles Barbecue corn chips You was probably eating up some silky in the porn flick I try to keep the same balance I was born with Everybody got grills Turkey or chicken Stupid or scared No work in the kitchen now Who put you there in that perfect position now Bullies want your food And you ain't really Yeah, diet culture uh, How do I love thee? Wait, yeah, I don't. Um, I think diet culture has been uh, one of the many recent catchphrases in our world, which I think is at best annoying and at worst uh, potentially fatal. Like weirdly, the diet culture has very little to do with food and a lot to do with fear. Um, you know, it's a 900 plus billion dollar global industry that banks on the fact that it can scare decent human beings into thinking they're unhealthy or ugly or stupid or on their deathbed. Um, I think it creates mental angst and promotes social anxiety. And I mean, think about that 900 plus billion. Like, just let that sink in for a sec. This is Dr. Aaron Nitschke. This is Dr. Darian Parker. This is Decoding Diet Culture. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another conversation on decoding diet culture. And today's focus is going to be on strategies to nurture body respect, either for the clients you work with, or maybe, maybe this applies well to you. And as a health and exercise professional, this topic has become more and more important to me as I have gained more and more experience, uh, particularly over like the last 10 years. Contemporary measures of progress in the fitness industry were, were primarily focused on physical, so endurance, strength, body composition. And, and now we have these contemporary parameters that we tend to measure things like energy and sleep and mindset and mindfulness. So it transcends really that physical dimension that we used to focus on and think that, well, physical fitness is physical, but, but it's really not. It's so much more than that. And one of the things, one of the hot topics in the health and exercise industry is this notion of body respect. And um, it's, it's one of those things that diet culture wants to mute and it doesn't want to acknowledge it. And, and it, it does everything it can to fight against this idea of nurturing body respect and developing a healthy relationship with the body. Um, and think about this. How many times have you thought, oh, I'm, I feel so fat or, oh, my, my calves are so small or this needs to be bigger or this needs to be different. And it's always in reference to some sort of physical landmark. And now if you are a health and exercise professional and you're listening to this, ask yourself the same question. How many of you have had very similar kind of self-deprecating thoughts? And as a health and exercise professional, 
I am betting that most of us have, have been there. We've all been there at one point or another. So the thoughts really that we have, these, these cognitive distortions that we have are really influenced by diet culture and this fat phobic perfection glorifying message that, that really underpins the culture and, and what diet culture practices really involve. So the goal in talking about this is not to eradicate diet culture. Uh, what a dream that would be, but it's, it's never going to happen. But we can combat it by choosing to limit our exposure to those messages and also kind of rethinking our, our thought patterns, reframing our mindset. And so I, I want to share a handful of strategies that, that help nurture body respect because they're, they're focused on the relationship you have with yourself. And it's, it's never going to be about your body. It's always going to come down to the relationship you have with the body. So hopefully you find some of these strategies useful or insightful, or um, maybe just, just interesting. And you want to try and kind of think of it as an a la carte option. Uh, choose what you think might work for you and then explore other options as, as you go on. So the strategies that I'm going to share are not an exhaustive list. They are really what I have come to see be very effective over time as I have worked with clients, as I've worked with students. Um, there are certainly others out there, but I'm going to, I'm just going to share some very simple ones. So honor hunger. I put this at the top because one major red flag of diet culture is this, this idea of restriction, this idea of taking something away. And that when we do that, when we constantly chip away and take something away, we're ignoring the natural cues our body gives us to say, eat, you're hungry, you need something. And over time we become desensitized and those cues can be going off and going off. And it's like, we don't hear the alarm bells anymore. So the simple message here is just honor the hunger cues and reach for a snack that's going to nourish and, and keep you satiated. And one of the strategies I like to, to do is to focus on protein, healthy fat and fiber. So some combination of that, whether it's a hard boiled egg and maybe an apple, or it's a banana with some natural almond butter, or peanut butter, choose cashew butter, whatever, whatever your favorite nut butter is. It's a healthy fat because it, it helps keep you satiated. And that means it's just going to keep you fuller longer. So that's the first strategy. The second one is to take breaks. I don't know at what point in our existence as humans that the message became that, that rest is a reward rather than a right. And that productivity is, is always going to be the ultimate goal. Taking breaks is a, is a necessary component to heal and recover. And that goes for both physical breaks and mental breaks. You need a physical break from exercise and activity, and you need a mental break from all of the noise that comes with simply adulting and living life, right? So for clients, what I like to do is integrate specific rest days into their overall program. But I also, when I'm doing reflective practices with them, I ask them, so what were your mental breaks like? And I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about how to take a mental break later, but I ask them, how often did you do this at what triggered it? What tool or, or strategy did you use to remind yourself to take this break? And we get into this conversation. So take breaks. 
And this also goes with saying no. And one of the things I've embraced later in life is being able to say, you know, my plate is as full as I'd like it to be right now. Thank you so much. Maybe another time. And I think that's a really important message to send to people um, because then if you continually pile things on your plate, you're never going to get a rest. You will never get a rest. So take breaks. The next one is to wear clothes that make you feel good. I think the fashion industry is as equally guilty as the diet industry for setting these really weird, unrealistic and, and ridiculous uh, standards that, that we're supposed to somehow feel like, oh, because it's in, I'm going to wear it. And we spend way too much time, time trying to fit into those standards. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make us feel good. You feel awkward. Think about it. Like anytime you've put something on where you're like, well, why is this a thing? For me, it's high-waisted jeans. I'm 5'2". High-waisted jeans are completely unrealistic for someone of my size, in my opinion. For me, it makes me feel awkward. And then I don't do my best work if I don't feel confident in what I have chosen to be dressed in. So wear clothes that make you feel good. It'll boost your confidence. Your mindset will shift. It'll be positivity. The next one is move in a way that makes you feel good. So my goal, and has always been my goal as a health and exercise professional, is to really encourage people to move more, sit less, enjoy balanced nutrition, sleep, manage your stress, and make sure you're taking in some water daily. Doesn't need to be a gallon stay hydrated. And I also try to teach clients that exercise and physical activity are two different concepts. Exercise is very structured and kind of this programmatic, progressive um, kind of approach. Whereas physical activity is kind of just that movement. It can include just getting up from your desk and taking a five minute walk. That's physical activity. Each are important and each have a purpose. So engage in both but you should feel encouraged to engage in whatever type of movement makes you feel good, makes you feel energized, and that is progressive. And, and look at how your day is structured. Are there ways you can integrate more movement and less sitting? Do it and start, start small. Start with a very small goal of, I'm gonna get up every two hours and I'm going to take a stand break. That's a, that's a very small, very realistic, doable goal. So move however you are called to move and do so with enjoyment. And the best type of exercise or physical activity plan or regimen is one that you enjoy and one that you're going to practice consistently. And you won't get to the consistency part if you don't enjoy it. So prioritize that. The next one, I'm a huge fan of this one because it's the one type of cleanse I think we all need. And it's a social media cleanse. There are so many negative and demotivating messages. Social media is often not a very safe space to share concerns, comments, ideas, or thoughts. And throughout the day, as you're what I call doom scrolling, you're just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling through. And you're coming across all of these, these images. And whether you're conscious to it or it's sort of those subliminal messages that, that take root in your brain somewhere, it's still damaging. And so I like to encourage people, go through your Instagram, go through your TikTok, your Facebook, your Twitter, even LinkedIn, um, and, and start clearing out anything that does not bring you joy or does not make you feel good or provide some sort of inspirational message, okay? 
that's definitely one that I would put at the top of your to-do. And then unfollow. They're not going to know. Trust me. The next one is practice journaling. I like journaling because it is a really excellent reflective practice that allows us to process experiences, information, feelings. It's a safe space. And it doesn't have to be a lengthy, you know, old school journal. You can type it out on your computer. You can, you know, maybe you have an Evernote process. Maybe you've got another app that helps you journal or, or be reflective. I like it because it, it allows us that, that ability to take that pause, hit that pause button that, that oh, we wish life actually had. Um, but it allows us to hit the pause button and, and think about, you know, how you felt around food, how you felt around activity. What was your stress? Like, what was your social social? Like, what was your sleep? Like all of that. And, and what wins did you have for the day? And if this is too much to do over a period of every day, start small, do it like bi-weekly or once a week, whatever can fit into your lifestyle and into your mantra, do it. The very last one I really like is setting intentions. So when I work with a client or I teach a group fitness class, I really like to take a minute at the beginning to ask everyone in the room, what is your intention for the work we're going to do today? Is it to feel strong? Is it to let go? Is it to feel refreshed, to unwind, to, to re-energize, to get inspired? Um, it, and I try to keep the focus off of something physical. So it's not to torch calories. It's not to get a booty burn. It's not to do any of that. It's, it's really about what is your intention? And then at the end of the session, what I like to do is do another reflective practice where I ask them, how, how connected did you feel to your intention? And, and we kind of process that a little bit. So really the, the, the intention drives focus and supports connecting with a feeling of, or a process rather than some sort of physical appearance or body image, which is why I ask them, how do you want to feel about it? What do you want to think in this duration of, of the work that we're going to do? And so you kind of set that intention and it's something you can do a daily intention. You can do a weekly intention. Maybe that's too much. And maybe it's a monthly intention. This month is my focus is going to be on learning. So I am going to engage in these two activities over the course of the next four to five weeks to accomplish that. And then you can do a reflection at the end. So a lot of these strategies are really about mindset because, because really as, as an exercise professional, the one thing I've learned over time among the many is that you have to get the mind right. And then the body will follow because if we are constantly telling ourselves we're, we're not good enough and we're questioning our enoughness, the, the body absorbs those messages and, and it feels them absolutely. And it takes root and it doesn't do anything for your energy. It doesn't do anything. You're not manifesting something really positive. So I encourage you kind of think back on some of these strategies, reflect on them, use one of those strategies uh, to decide like, what do I want to try? And what's important for me to get out of this? And it starts with developing that relationship with our body. And, and we'll never develop that relationship if we don't get the mindset fixed or at least to a place that it's open, it's receptive, and it's it's welcoming and, it, and it's warm versus listening to all of those diet culture messages, which are so, so loud, they're overt, they're in your face all the time. But part of it is recognizing it 
and knowing when to trust it or trash it, whatever message you're receiving. So I hope these strategies were helpful and I would be curious to know what has worked for you in the past or what you are going to try and what the outcome is.